All right, good morning. Come on in and grab a seat. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class. If you are visiting with us, this is not our real service. That's at 1030. This is a theology class that we do. Uh, In this semester, we are going over social and political theology. It being an election year, we thought that it would be wise to uh, teach the whole counsel of God on some of these issues that maybe you've never heard a lesson on. And so let me open us with a word of prayer, and then we will talk about everybody's favorite topic, which is Christian economics, all right? So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Almighty God, we thank you for today. Pray that you'd bless this time. We confess that everything comes from your hand, that the cattle on a thousand hills are yours and everything that you've given us uh, has just been a grace. We confess that in Christ, we get to inherit the whole world. And so we thank you for these things. Would you guide our thinking? Would you guide our heart on these different issues? It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about Christian economics and uh, what that is and what it's not. I'm gonna start with a quote from the hit sitcom, New Girl where there is a bartender named Nick Miller, and he is just talking. He's got this monologue where he's just talking about his views on money, and he says something like this. What is money? It's just something some king on a mountain decided was worth something. Gold, I understand. It's shiny. You can make jewelry out of it. Silver, put a werewolf in front of me, and he's dead. Brass makes the bells that ring throughout the land, but we kill each other for paper. Now that ignorant line, which is great, it's a fantastic line, is how a lot of people think of economics. It's how a lot of people think of money, right? And so our hope today is to uh, untangle that a little bit and talk uh, talk a little bit about what the Bible does say related to money. So this won't just be a lesson on economic theory, although that would be a lot of fun, because we want to see what the Bible's gonna say on these topics. So we're gonna do a little brief history and uh, go over some Uh, economic things you need to know, and then we're going to look specifically about what the Bible says related to money, poverty, and property, okay? First of all, why is it called economics? I have this, uh, this wonderful Greek word up here, oikos. Yes, like the yogurt, all right? This is a yogurt you eat in your home. The oi- oikos or oikia in Greek is the Greek word that's used in the New Testament for home or house, okay? So uh, oikonomia is what the idea of where we get our word economy. It's the idea of household management. Originally in the Greco-Roman world, you would have somebody that would kind of manage your estate. They, they would practice managing your oikos or your oikia, your home. And so that term means uh, kind of uh, estate management, wealth management. And so now it's used for this bigger category of uh, you know, economics within a country and gross domestic product and all this kind of stuff. And so that's where the term uh, comes from. Uh, now, let me start with a great quote because economics is something probably most of us don't know a lot about. We might know a lot about finance, okay? Finance is different than economics. Economics is a subset of political philosophy. But let me give you a great quote from uh, John Maynard Keynes, who's a famous uh, economist. The ideas of economists and political philosophers, both when they are right and when they are wrong, are more powerful than commonly understood. Indeed, the world is ruled by little else. Practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influence are usually the slaves of some defunct economist, okay? So this is important. This will affect the the way you uh, vote. It'll affect the way that you see politics. It'll affect the way that you think about money and these kind of things. So let's go over a quick history of economics, impress your friends, and then we will get into what the Bible says on some of these issues. First of all, let's talk about how economics was done throughout most of Western history. Economics before the Enlightenment was mainly set by tradition or by the state. So who's the one that is primarily controlling the economics for that country? Before the Enlightenment, it is going to be the state or tradition. That's what's gonna control the the market, okay? That's what's gonna control the market. The church in the Middle Ages thought that lending money at interest, what it called usury, was sinful. Because of this, the banking industry was often led by Jewish people who did not hold the same view on usury as the church. So what you started to see in the Middle Ages, especially in Europe, is there was this idea that lending money at interest was sinful, especially from a Christian to another Christian, and all of Europe considered itself to be Christian, whether it was or or not. And so what happened is the uh, banking industry became very powerful, and it was primarily led by Jewish people within Europe because they didn't hold the same view that the church had had on usury. So an interesting thing for you there. John Locke, who is not a good uh, philosopher when it comes to metaphysics or epistemology, but is a great philosopher when it comes to politics, believed that private property was a premier right and that one had a right to use that with which they, quote, mix their labor. So this is Locke's idea. When you go out and you work the ground and you till the ground, because you've mixed your labor with it, that should belong to you. That's why originally you were going to have the right to, uh, you know, to uh, life, liberty, and property. And they changed it to pursuit of happiness because that was a little less committal, right? So the idea with Locke, though, is that you, whatever you mix your labor with, that belongs to you. 
The problem, he says, is when people try to own more than they can actually work. So when you try to own more land than you can actually take care of, when you try to collect more acorns or whatever it is than you actually need, that's when the problem gets in there. So if everyone could just simply have the land that they're able to work, everyone could have a uh, pretty large amount uh, of land. Bernard Mandeville Mandeville, and Voltaire said that worldly advancement is good. Now, this is in contrast to the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, here's what was good. If you were like a king, that was awesome. If you were clergy, that was awesome. But if you were just the regular populace, okay, if you were just people that were working, you were a farmer, you were a tradesman, whatever it is, that work was extremely devalued by the Roman Catholic Church. It was seen as junior varsity. This is one of the unique things about the Reformation is that it brought value to regular work, that you would honor God just when you till the ground. You can send an email to the glory of God, right? It has a lot less curse words in it. It's less curt, et cetera. You can do any job to the glory of God. That is recovered at the Reformation. But in the Middle Ages, that was not the view. In the Middle Ages, regular work was kind of seen as menial. It wasn't as good. There's a a famous phrase about the Middle Ages that there were those who fight, talking about knights and nobility, those who pray, the clergy, and those who work, being the peasant class. And what happened was that there was this idea that to try to make money in the Middle Ages was seen as evil. After all, Jesus warns against making a bunch of money. He talks about that a lot, that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for the camel to go through the eye of the needle, which is not some gate in Jerusalem. He's saying it's impossible. That's his whole point, okay? Is that the only way you can be saved is through him. You can't be like the rich young ruler who loves money above Christ. And so you had this idea in the Middle Ages that money was dangerous, that money was bad, that for you to try to make money was a very dangerous thing. You're kind of walking on the edge of hell. That was the idea in the Middle Ages. So what you got in the Enlightenment is you got a reversal of that. You got the idea to say, you should seek worldly advancement. And a lot of that was led by guys like Voltaire who are obviously not Christians. It's kind of like if you've ever seen that uh, Wall Street movie, I don't even think I've seen it, but I'm familiar, I've, I've heard this quote where Gordon Gecko gives his speech on how greed is good. That's kind of what's going on with uh, Mandeville and uh, Voltaire. Now, what's new in capitalism post the Reformation, so notice this is after the Reformation, is that the market, not an intelligence, should be allowed to set the price of production of things. Now, Plato, Aristotle, Aquinas would have all said that makes no sense. For for most of history, up until the Reformation, the great thinkers would say, you can't just let the market be the market. You can't have free market economics. That would be chaos. People just producing what they want to produce, you're going to get the wrong stuff. And so it has to be led by an intelligence, whether it's a king, whether it's some type of ambassador or commissioner from the king, whether it's led by a society of philosopher kings, like in Plato's Republic, whatever it might be, that's what they thought. What's new post the Reformation is the realization that you can have a free market that just works. If your country doesn't have enough steak, someone will say, I need a job, I'm going to raise cattle and make steak, right? And so it just seems to happen. So what you got in 1776, is that an important year? America. Okay, so in 1776, three important things happened, okay? One, the Declaration of Independence was signed, okay? Number two, David Hume died. David Hume, the great atheist, skeptic philosopher who obviously is not a believer, but his uh, philosophy is very hard to refute. Uh, He died. There was actually a lot of interest around his death on whether or not he would repent or pray to God. Of course, he did not. He remained a rebel till the end, but he died in 1776, and Adam Smith wrote, he was a Scottish moral philosopher, by the way, he wrote The Wealth of Nations, where he popularized this idea of free market economics, that, uh, that if you just leave people alone, they will meet the needs as they need to be met. Where there is a need for something to be produced, someone will produce it. Where there is a need for a service to be produced, it will be produced through what he calls an invisible hand. The idea is somehow it just works, we don't exactly know how it works. Here's a great quote from Smith. Every individual neither intends to promote the public interest nor knows how much he's promoting it. He intends only his own security and by directing that industry in such a manner as its produce may be of the greatest value. He intends only his own gain and he is in this, as in many other cases, led by an invisible hand, there's the phrase, to promote an end which was no part of his intention. So here's what Adam Smith is saying. Here's all you have to do to make a bunch of people rich and to have a great economy. Just let people be self-interested. As you, just per, as you just pursue your own ends, as you say, okay, I want to have a house, I want to have food for my family, I want to send my kid to college, I want to do that. As you're just doing that, you're not thinking of others, you're just thinking of yourself, guess what that provides jobs for? People that make houses and people that teach in college and all these kind of things. You don't have to try to have some huge system, you just pursue things in life and somehow magically, 
it all works out. And Smith was right. It does work out when you have kind of a free market uh, economy. He believed that the free market will help everyone in society flourish when the rich get richer, the poor get richer as well because the entire society gets richer, okay? Now, if you say to somebody who's kind of on the far left that if the rich get richer, everyone gets richer, they say, "Uh uh-uh, that's not true, but it is true. Consider homeless people in America versus homeless people in Ethiopia, Homeless people in America, overweight, wear parka jackets and have iPhones. Homeless people in Ethiopia don't have food, okay? It's not the same. When a society is wealthier overall, the lowest common denominator is still better off than the rest of the world. So it is the case that when the tides rise, all the ships rise with it. Some ships are bigger than others. Some ships get up on a wave higher than others. But all the ships rise when an economy flourishes within a nation. Now, the response to this, the the, the biggest proponent, obviously, of free market economics is Karl Marx, okay? What Karl Marx believed is, uh, first of all, he believed that you should view all of world history through the lens of economics. What drives people is not theology, it's not, uh, you know, some sort of uh, altruism or something like that, it's economics, that's his view. And what Marx believed is that free market capitalism confused a worker's use value with exchange value. What does that mean? A use value is how valuable something is that can be used. Its exchange value is this arbitrary price that we set to it. Let me give you an example. Which one is more valuable, water or diamonds? Depends on what you mean. The use value of water, much higher. Without water, we all die, okay? Diamonds, on the other hand, have a very high exchange value. They're worth a lot of money but only because we've said they're worth a lot of money. They're not actually that useful. Yeah, you can put them at the ends of your tools or something like that, and yeah, you know, you can propose to your girlfriend or whatever, but other than that, they don't really serve a purpose, right? They're just pretty and they're rare, and so we say that's worth a lot of money. What Marx had thought is that we had done that, that meaning capitalist, that we had done that with workers. We'd confuse their work or their use value. They're actually more valuable than they're actually getting paid. Within Marx's system, What the bourgeoisie does is it works somebody so hard that they cannot advance so that it can use them as a type of industrial slave. That you want your workers, if you're part of the bourgeoisie, you're a factory owner, you want your workers to be so tired at the end of the day where the only thing that they can do is go home and be intimate with their wife to produce more workers and they can never advance, okay? It's a a type of voluntary slavery for Marx. So Marx believed that the free free market capitalism confused a worker's use value with exchange value and believed that therefore... The only way to avoid being a slave to the bourgeoisie is to abolish private property and have the state redistribute wealth, okay? He promotes this not only in the thing you're probably more familiar with, the Communist Manifesto, but more importantly, a book that most people have not read by Marx, Das Kapital. That's going to be the place where he's really pushing uh, kind of for this communist idea. Now, communism is wrong on so many levels, okay? Let, Let me just go over a few things where communism has a big swing and a miss, okay? First of all, communism was wrong because the proletariat, the non-factory owners, the non-bourgeoisie, in a communist system never actually owns the goods the government does. So what you'll hear sometimes by people that promote socialism and promote communism is they'll say communism would work, it's just never been implemented correctly, okay? It can't be implemented correctly because the system is illogical in and of itself. Marx thought that capitalism was illogical. He was wrong. It works great. His system is logically contradictory. Let me explain why. The idea is that we redistribute wealth so that everybody has the same stuff. We have material equality. We've got the same stuff at the end of the day, okay? However, that's supposed to belong to the people. Guess what always happens in communism? It has to start belonging to the government. So we all share our wealth and we're all just this community and then somebody wants to go to war with us. Now what happens? Well, now we need a government. Or we need to distribute all of our wealth. Who's going to help us distribute it? The government. And as soon as you establish a government in communism, it's not as though everyone has equal stuff. It really turns out that the government owns everything and you actually own nothing. So the the system in and of itself is broken. It's supposed to be the people all own the stuff and there is no rule over them. But you can't have that. You can't have anarchy. You'll have to have some type of government. And as soon as you have a governmental power, you get a Stalin or you get a Kim Jong-un or whatever it might be, okay? So the the system itself is logically flawed. Additionally, capitalism was making everyone richer, not just the bourgeoisie. So in Marx's theory, as the rich got richer, the poor would not get richer at all, but that just wasn't the case. In capitalistic nations around the time that Marx is writing, they were doing better 
Marx, to be honest with you, is kind of a loser. He uh, just lived in his buddy's apartment that his buddy Ingalls had to purchase for him. He was never really a great force. He wasn't a winner. He just kind of sat in his uh, apartment and complained. He didn't do anything great. Number three, there was a growing and content middle class. Now, you can't have that within Marx's system. You have to have the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. There's no middle class. There's no people that are doing all right. But there was a growing middle class at the time that Marx is writing, which also is a refutation of the theory, okay? Another problem with capitalism, the communist revolution didn't happen in the most capitalistic nations. That was what Marx said would have to happen. He thought that capitalism was logically incoherent, that the more capitalistic a nation got, the rich and the poor would be further divided, and the poor would only be able to take back the country through violent revolution, okay? Through violent revolution, but that wasn't happening. You started to get a growing middle class. And in the most capitalistic nations, everyone was doing great. They weren't on the verge of civil war. Number five, laborers, laborers could afford their labor against uh, Marx's view of mis, uh, misunderstanding use value and exchange value. So for example, Henry Ford's assembly line workers were paid enough to actually buy the Model T, okay? And then number six, it was based on a view of humanity that saw us as primarily neutral instead of sinful. Let me tell you why communism will never work, no matter how well you try to do it. It's based on a wrong homardiology. It's based on a wrong view of human sin, okay? That's the problem. It assumes that mankind is morally neutral, that if we say we're all going to help each other out, the rich guy will hike up his slacks and get down in the rice paddy and help the poor person because we just so love one another, okay? Doesn't work like that because the Bible teaches that we're born positively sinful. Not good, not neutral. That's called Pelagianism. That's a heresy. We are born sinful, not only because we're born in the line of Adam, but also because we commit our own sin. That's why communism won't work because the person doesn't say, though I'm gonna make less money, I'm gonna go help all these people. That's not self-interested. That's not how things work. Let me give you an example. I just gave a bunch of info, so if that's confusing, let me just summarize it this way. Let's say you're all taking a class. So you are, you're taking this class. So you don't get a grade for it, but let's pretend you're taking this class for a grade. And I say to you, no matter what you do, everyone in here will get a C. That will be your grade. No matter what you do, everyone in here will get a C. Think about what that means. The student who was going to get an A, they're not gonna try harder. They're not gonna stay up late and do the extra studying. If they're gonna get a C no matter what, they're actually gonna produce less. They, they don't care because they're not gonna get rewarded for what they're doing. They're not gonna get the A they're striving for. They're just gonna get a C, so they will work less. And then the student who was already gonna get an F, he's not gonna do anything because he's gonna get a C. So it causes the entire class to be dumber. It causes everyone to go lower, not for everyone to strive for excellence. That's what communism always does. When you say everyone gets a C no matter how hard you work, the hard workers aren't gonna work hard because they don't benefit from that. And the people that are already slacking off will keep slacking off because they get a C no matter what. That system is logically incoherent. That is just how human nature is, okay? Remember, Marx doesn't hold a view of human sin. He's an atheist. The system is godless. And so in his mind, people will help each other. The, the student will try to get an A anyway. Never happens that way. Never happens that way, okay? The British economist, John Maynard Keynes, believed that the free market doesn't always respond quickly in a financial crisis, for example, in the Great Depression. So the state has a right to interfere with the market in these times to make a financial crisis less devastating. When you got your COVID stimulus check, you got a lesson in Keynesian economics, okay? That's what that is. That in times of recession, don't just let the free market work, which could actually lead to, uh, to, to greater flourishing in the future, although you have to go through a hard time, have the government bail you out during that time. That's Keynesian economics. We've all experienced that even this year. And then others kicked against Keynes. The other capitalist thinkers have criticized Keynes' theory, such as Friedrich von Hayek and Milton Friedman. Those are gonna be the big pro-capitalism guys that, uh, that are gonna critique Keynes. Hayek's work was actually so good that Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Lady, right? One time in a meeting of the British Conservative Party held up one of Hayek's books and said, this is what we believe and slammed it down, right? So that was the, uh, that's the idea. There's your quick history of economics. Now, let's shift gears and say, okay, we've got a framework now. Let's shift gears and talk a little bit about what the Bible says in relation to wealth, poverty, and property, okay? Let's talk a little bit about that as we uh, switch gears here. First of all, I cannot cover everything that the Bible says on economics. The Bible talks about your work. It talks about your labor. It talks about your money. It talks about property. It talks about the poor. 
a bunch, okay? So to some extent, what I'm about to tell you, these points are gonna be somewhat arbitrary. I'm just like, here's an important point in the Bible. the, The lesson would be nine hours if I went through everything the Bible says on money. This is not a lesson on money, okay? We have other sermons where we've talked about money or giving or whatever it is. This is one on specifically wealth, poverty, and property. So let's look at some things the Bible teaches about money. Number one, you will never be satisfied by money no matter how much you have, okay? It's true, and it is this saying that it goes back to Augustine, but others had said it before him, that our hearts are restless until they rest in God. God has put eternity in our hearts. Here's what that means. We are created to worship God, and so the only thing that will fulfill that desperate longing, which we all have, where we're never satisfied and we're never fully happy and we're always frustrated and no matter what we pursue, it kind of lets us down, God has wired us that way so that we might pursue him and him alone, okay? God is the only infinite thing. And so that is the only thing that can fulfill that infinite longing in your heart. No matter how much money you have, it's never enough. It's never enough. How much money is enough? More than what I have. That's what your heart will always say. The Bible's gonna be very clear that no matter how much you get, contentment is not an issue of what you have. Contentment is an issue of the heart. You can't get rid of discontentment by getting more things. Ecclesiastes 5.10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Number two, you are not to love money, okay? You're not to love money. Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Luke 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. One of the things the Bible is going to critique the Pharisees for is that they love money. 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money. Notice it's not the money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is the root of all kinds of good things. It's the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So the second thing is you are not to love money. Some things where the Bible teaches about money. Number three, you are to be content with what you have. This is hard for us, okay? This is hard for us. Our entire society says, don't be content. What is marketing? What is advertising? What is living in a capitalistic system other than saying you need something? You have FOMO, fear of missing out, okay? If I go into a store and there's a new flavor of Coca-Cola that I haven't tried, I have to buy it because what if it's excellent and I miss out and I die and I have eternal bliss but I've never had orange vanilla Coke, right? So it's like that with everything. If you don't have this type of car and this type of home and this type of whatever, that you won't be uh, satisfied. Whereas the Bible's gonna command us to be content. This is why those in the Middle Ages are pushing against the Voltaires of the world. They're saying the Bible commands contentment, not excess. Hebrews 15, uh, 13, five. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That second part's really important. How do you actually be content? You can't just go home today and be content. Look at the second part of the verse. Here's how you be content. Because you know that God provides for you and he has everything that you need. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Notice the actual context of that verse. That's everybody's verse that they love and they've got it on their shirt at the gym when they're doing bench press. Like, I can do all things through Christ. It's not talking about bench press. It's not talking about being great. It's talking about how when you don't have enough money to have food, how Christ is still enough. It's saying when life is going really bad, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Number four, your ability to make money is a gift from God. Your ability to make money is a gift from God. There are no self-made men. I was watching some show and some guy who was really wealthy had a a statue in his backyard of a guy crafting himself out of stone. And he said, you see, it's a self-made man because I'm a self-made man. And I thought, what do you mean self-made man as you breathe God's air? There are no self-made men. God keeps you in existence. He keeps your heart beating. Every talent he has given you comes from him. Every resource he's given you comes from him. We like to think that yes, God gives me money and he gives me a job, but I worked hard. Who determined you would be the kind of person who works hard? Did you determine that in your mother's womb? You're in your mother's womb and you're like, I'm gonna be a fighter. So you're just punching and kicking inside the womb and you're like, I'm gonna be driven. God determined if you're driven that you'd be driven. God determined if you're smart that you would be smart. Really the way to fight against pride, by the way, is not false humility. 
Like if you go up to somebody and you say, man, you're so smart or you're so beautiful or you're so talented, and they say, no, I'm just, a, I'm just super dumb. That's not real humility. If you go to you know, Michael Jordan and you're like, you're such a great basketball player, and he's like, no, I'm the worst. That's a lie, okay? The way that you have humility is realizing that all the stuff you have is given to you by God. It's not by downplaying your talents. It's by realizing that what, have you, what do you have that you have not received, as Paul would say, nothing. Every drive you have, every success you have, every opportunity you have, the intelligence you have, all of that is a gift from God. And when you realize that you did nothing, that's where humility comes. That's where humility comes. Notice that your ability to make money is a gift from God. Deuteronomy 8, 17 through 18. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Ooh, this is good. You shall remember that Yahweh, the Lord your God, for he Uh, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. Notice, if you think, I did this because I'm a hard worker, that's why I got my money, this would say no. The power to get wealth comes from God himself, okay? Number five, money can be a blessing and a reward from God. So let let me just uh, make sure that we don't uh, get prosperity gospel here. What the prosperity gospel weirdos will say, and yes, they are weirdos, like literally a lot of them are heretics and they do real weird stuff and they're all involved in scandals. What they will say is that if you're really walking faithfully, you will be healthy and wealthy and things will go well. And then you read the Bible and like all the people that are the godliest get martyred and killed and lives are really hard, okay? So it's not the case that if you follow God, you will always have this wealth. But you don't wanna swing the pendulum and say that God doesn't ever bless. God does bless the works of your hands, There is a sense in which sometimes, not always, that God will give you good things as you walk in faithfulness and he will discipline you when you're not walking in faithfulness. To quote Tommy Nelson at Denton Bible, it just seems like sometimes Christians get lucky. The point of that is that it seems like life just seems to work somehow when you do it the way that God has commanded. So money can be, but it is not always. It's always a blessing from God, but it's not always a blessing for what you're doing. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Proverbs 21, 5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Deuteronomy 28, 12, the Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land and its seasons and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. So sometimes it is just a blessing from God to give you these good things, okay? So sometimes if you have wealth, you should realize God's just been gracious to me. He just loves me, it's just a gift. That doesn't mean if you don't have money, he doesn't love you, okay? God does not give everyone the same number of talents. Number six, Money is not bad, nor is it wrong to be rich. Now, there's something in our society where we inherently think that if someone has wealth, it's evil. We think of like rich people as de facto bad. We see them smoking their big cigars as all these plumes of smoke from their factories fill the sky and birds fall from the sky and die because of the industry or whatever it is. There's nothing wrong or bad about being rich, okay? So keep that in mind. You could get your wealth through unrighteous means. That would be bad but the wealth itself is not bad. Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 20, behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Proverbs 10.4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And then number seven on uh, things to know about wealth, Christians should provide for their family, including their aging parents. Listen to this strange text. 1 Timothy 5.8, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The Bible takes it very seriously that you provide for your family. So if you're a guy, you get a job and you provide for your family. And if that means you're mopping floors as a janitor, you do it to the glory of God and you'd be the best dang janitor you've ever seen, okay? That's what it means to try to provide for your family. Now, in context, he's actually talking about aging parents and having these people not be a burden to the church because their family takes care of them. This is something we don't at all think about as a Western society. You think about this if you live in Japan, you think about this if you live in India, your retirement plan is your kids. That's your, reti- that, that's your, uh, that's your social security. It's your kids, that's your retirement plan. 
In the Bible, that's the case as well. There's this idea that kids are to care for their aging parents, and if they don't do so, they've denied the faith and are worse than a non-believer. Now, that doesn't mean that your parents necessarily have to live in your home or something like that. You can help them afford living care facilities, you can help them, but you can't just check out and say, who cares what happens to aging mom and dad? You have to somehow be involved in trying to help your aging parents. Now, let's shift gears and talk a little bit about poverty. So we've talked about wealth, talked about rich, now let's talk about poor. Some things the Bible teaches about the poor. Number one, the poor should attempt to not be poor. The poor should attempt to not be a financial burden to others. Second Thessalonians 3, 7 through 8. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It's not wrong to be poor, but you should always be trying to not be poor. You should always be trying to work out of that. To just sit in that is not being diligent. It's being what this Bible would call idle. First Timothy 5.16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So you should, there should be this attempt to not be a burden on others because of one's poverty. Number two. It is not inherently unrighteous to be poor and God loves the righteous poor. Okay? 1 Samuel 2, 7 through 8. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. There's God's sovereignty again. If someone is poor, it is because God has ordained it. If they are rich, it is because God has ordained it. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. Okay? He has set the world. Number three, some poverty not all. Notice that God cares for the poor and he cares for specifically the righteous poor. That's something our society doesn't do. You'll see a lot of kind of social justice warriors being like, God loves the poor. Well, it depends. If somebody is poor because of their drug addiction, they are under God's wrath, right? If they are poor because they, somebody got cancer and they couldn't pay the medical bills, that's different. There's righteous poor and unrighteous poor, just like there's righteous rich and unrighteous rich, okay? Some people are poor and the way they got poor is sinful, and it should not be the case that that is exalted. Other people are poor due to no fault of their own, and those are the ones that we should care for. Additionally, the same thing is true with wealth. Some people got wealth through unrighteous means. They betrayed people, lied on their you know, business deals, stabbed people on the back, clawed their way to the top. Other people, though, are wealthy because they made righteous things. They did what the book of Proverbs says, and they worked hard, and they were smart, and God blessed the work of their hands. And so keep that in mind. It's not just that God loves the poor or doesn't love the poor or loves the rich. You have to separate it out from a Christian worldview, which is that God loves believers and he hates non-believers. That's the bigger category in dealing with uh, this issue. Now, number three, some poverty is due to unrighteousness, laziness or bad decisions. Proverbs 13, 18, poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. Proverbs 6, 9 through 11, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want, like an armed man, okay? We've got a sermon that's online if you want to listen to it about work that is on uh, Proverbs 6, if you want to uh, listen to that on your drive to work, whatever it might be. But know this, that some poverty is due to unrighteousness, in this case, laziness or bad decisions, or in the first instance that I gave, not listening to people's rebuke. If you're someone that always feels like life just never works for you, ask yourself, am I listening when people rebuke me and give me instruction or do I think I know more than others? Number four, you may not show partiality to the poor in court. Now this one's interesting because we live in a society that doesn't say treat everyone equally. We live in a society that says treat people unequal as long as they were somebody in power. As long as they were somebody in authority, as long as they were somebody who uh, had traditionally had good things in life, you should actually try to oppress them. Our culture doesn't say, give us equality. It says, oppress your oppressor. That's what our culture says. The Bible's gonna push back against that. Leviticus 19.15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. When, when you're in a court, you are not to say, I'm gonna be easier on this person because they're poor. You don't say, I'm gonna be easier on this person because they're a woman. You don't say, I'm gonna be easier on this person because they're a person of color. You don't say, I'm gonna be easier on this person for whatever reason. Justice in God's mind doesn't take into account the future and it doesn't take into account what's happened in the past in that instance. It just takes into account that instance. How that person became poor, the judge doesn't care about. The judge just cares about the case before him, okay? It just, if somebody has murdered five people, 
and they're convicted, they go to jail, and then they're accused of a sixth murder, you cannot assume that they actually killed them just because they've done that in the past. You have to actually look at that case because it might be the case that they didn't murder that sixth person. That's hard for us to do. It's hard for us to ignore the other factors and just look at justice, okay? Because we don't actually want justice. We want covetousness, okay? Number five, Christians should help the poor. Proverbs 14, 21. Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. Matthew 19, 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Number six, about poverty. Poverty cannot be eliminated this side of eternity. So any type of weird political system that's utopian that thinks we're gonna just live in an age where there is no poverty is a de facto unbiblical position. Yes, we fight against forms of extreme poverty. That's a good thing. But to think that somehow we're failing because there's still people that are poor, that's, the Bible's very clear that that will never go away until Christ comes back. Deuteronomy 15, 11, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, the poor, in your land. Matthew 26, 11, this is where Jesus gets this. He gets it from the Old Testament. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Okay? Number seven about poverty. You should not enable someone who is poor due to laziness. Enabling people in their sin is sin on your part, okay? So if you still got the, you know, 30-year-old living at home in your basement that just plays video games or whatever, that's not loving to them. It's loving to them to face the harsh realities of life and get out there, okay? So enablement is never loving. Enablement is sin. Second Thessalonians 3, 10 through 11. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. I'm gonna have to speed up a little bit. Number eight, you should not oppress or be mean to the poor or socially disadvantaged, okay? The poor or socially disadvantaged. James 2, 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? And it's, a, uh, it's an indictment against those who oppress the poor. Exodus 22, 22 through 24, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. That's a fun passage, huh? That's a fun passage. Anybody have that uh, embroidered on a pillow in their home? Okay. Okay, let's talk about some things the Bible teaches about property. Okay. Number one, and then we'll get into some other things related to economics and we'll do some Q&A. Property, number one, you have a right biblically to private property and may not take another's private property. This is the opposite of communism. The way Marx defines communism is the complete abolition of private property. You don't own anything. The community or the state owns all of it. Okay, that is not a biblical view. In the Bible, you own property. There are things that belong to you, and so the Bible is de facto against communism. Exodus 20, 17, tell me if this command makes any sense if everything is owned by everybody. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. The Bible just assumes private property is a thing. Exodus 20, 15, you shall not steal. That command makes no sense unless there's something to be stolen, unless there's something that doesn't, uh, belong to you. Number two, Christians may voluntarily share their property with those in need. This is the opposite of socialism. Acts 2, 44 through 45, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I've heard buddies of mine that are Christians that are a little more left-leaning say, see, Zach, you have socialism and communism in the Bible. And I say, where in that passage is the government involved? Nowhere. This is the opposite of socialism right? For you to voluntarily give your stuff or money to other Christians, yes and amen, that's good. For the government to mandate that you do so is not in this passage. In fact, if the government mandates it, it's no longer love. You're not doing it because you love the person and you care for them. You're just doing it because you have to, because it's the law. Number three, God condemns coveting to create economic equality. Matthew 25, 16, he who had received the five talents were at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. Luke twelve fifteen, and he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the, abundant, the abundance of his possessions. Or to quote the great theologian from Parks and Rec, Ron Swanson, capitalism, God's way of finding out who is smart and who is poor. Okay, now that's a joke, obviously. I'm just trying to keep you awake. It's economics. That's a joke. People are not obviously uh, always poor because they're not smart or something like that. Here's what I want you to understand. Our culture thinks that to have inequality between groups when it comes to money is bad 
And I'm saying that's exactly what God wants. There is no, the, the commands against coveting don't make any sense unless somebody has something you don't have. God, this is why there's the joke that God is a capitalist. God gives some people 10 talents and he gives other people one talent. God does that before they're born. He has some people be very smart, some people, God treats everyone uh, justly, but he does not treat everyone equally. He has some people born into very poor families where they will never get an education and their life will always be difficult. He has other people born into very affluent families. And you know what God's command is? Be happy where you are. Don't covet. Our society hates that. Our society says, if anyone has something I don't have, that's injustice. And God is saying, no, I want there to be different types of people. I want there to be different stratas in society. That's something that rubs us the wrong way, but the Bible teaches it. Number four, you should make restitution if you personally destroy someone's property. Exodus 22.5, if a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the, be- uh, from the best of his own field and in his own vineyard, okay? If you have ripped somebody off, you have wronged somebody, you should make that financial restitution as you need to make it. That's what the Bible would command us to do. Notice it's not commanding the state to make restitution for people that are already dead, whatever, it's commanding you to make restitution, okay? Zacchaeus, in the story of Zacchaeus, who's gonna pay back four times the amount of everybody he's ripped off, the state is not involved with that. That is something Zacchaeus is commanded to do since he's met Christ as a believer. Let's do some other things related to economics and then we'll have a little Q&A. A few things. Christians may not abrogate their responsibility to care for the poor by pawning it off on the government, okay? Listen. Jesus's command is for you to care for the poor, not to put somebody in office to care for the poor so you don't have to. That's what I hear from a lot of Christians. We we need to elect this person because they'll care for the poor. That's not the command for them. The command is for you, Christian, care for the poor. Are you caring for the poor? Not are you getting rid of your responsibility. I helped, I tweeted. That's not helping, okay? You have to actually help the poor. Do you know any any poor people personally? Or do you think helping the poor means putting someone in office so you don't have to think about it, you can pat yourself on the back and the whole time Christ is saying, this is not my command. My command is not you make others care for the poor so it doesn't actually have to affect you, it's you care for the poor. Second thing, this this shouldn't need to be said, but it needs to be said. There is not a limited amount of money, kind of like my quote from Nick Miller at the beginning of this lesson, there's not a limited amount of money. Some people think about this, they think that like the money in America is like a pie And if a rich person has more of the pie, there's less to go around. As the rich get richer, they're taking away our money. That's how people think. That is insane. That is not how money works at all, okay? Read a book if that's what you think. Money is the amount, it's just an indicator of a good or service put into an economy. If you want to go, you know, make fences, as you make more fences, that changes the capital. As I want to go be an insurance salesman, as I sell more insurance, that increases the capital, okay? That's how money works. There's not a limited amount. It's not as though by the rich person getting richer, they've somehow taken your money. They've created more overall money so that you can make more. It's this endless, uh, I mean, it's not literally endless in that only God is a true infinite, but it's endless in the sense that there are no limits to it. People can always produce more and they can have more services and they can do whatever. There's not a cap to it. You understand that our money is not based on like just a big like bank of gold or something like that. Because even when you have that, gold changes in valuation. Even if you have a pile of money, that money changes due to inflation. These are all just indicators of goods and services that are put into an economy. So don't think that because somebody has more money, they're taking it away from people. By them having more money, they're actually creating more money for others because they invest it and they create more jobs. Number three, Though there will always be gaps between rich and poor in a free market, everyone benefits, okay? So so let me give you another thing. Some people think that it is bad that there is a large gap between rich and poor. That is not bad. That is, there's nothing wrong in that biblically. That, That is a fake crisis. As the rich get richer, the gap between rich and poor does get bigger, but also the poor get much richer as well. If everyone's a millionaire and there are some billionaires, there's a big gap there but everyone's doing pretty well, okay? So this idea that there shouldn't be gaps, we shouldn't have this gap between the rich and the poor, that is a fake crisis, that's not a real thing, that's not a sin, that's not bad, that's not unbiblical. God gives some 10 talents and he gives some one talent, okay? So that should no longer be a concern. 
As the rich get richer, everyone gets richer, which is why I mentioned homeless people in America versus in Ethiopia, because all the businesses thrive when things are going well in that nation, okay? Number four, capitalism is a direct result of the Reformation and John Calvin in particular. Now, a lot of people don't know this. They think, Zach, you're just up there as a good capitalist. You got your Captain America shield and you're just doing capitalism because I'm a Protestant, because I'm a Reformed Protestant, okay? Capitalism, as we know it today, really begins before Adam Smith and those kind of guys. It begins with Calvin because Luther and Calvin are the guys who give value to regular work. One of the things that's recovered at the Reformation is this idea that all work equally glorifies God. If you're a janitor and I'm a pastor, whose job most glorifies God? They glorify him the same. We don't even think of that. Your job glorifies God as much as if you were a bishop or something like that. Whatever you do, work inherently is valuable. Work inherently is worship, okay? This is why you should be good at construction or you should be good at medicine or you should be good at law or whatever it is that you practice, you should be good at it because it is a way to worship God. When God creates Adam and Eve, how do they worship God? By working. They have no Bible yet to read. They have no sins yet to confess. They have no hymns yet to sing. How do Adam and Eve worship God? By subduing the earth, that's worship. Having babies, that's worship. Okay, this is how mankind, how does a squirrel, if all creation is there to glorify God, how does a squirrel glorify God? Does it raise its little hands in worship? Hmm? What does it do? It just bees a squirrel, to use good English, okay? That's how a squirrel glorifies God. As it runs around and it's hiding its acorns and whatever, that glorifies God in and of itself. Your work glorifies God. Because that's recovered at the Reformation, the areas where, where, the, where the Reformation most took off in uh, Europe flourished economically and beat out. So like in, the, in Luther's Germany, the areas, the provinces that were Protestant outperformed economically the ones that were Catholic because in Catholicism, there was still this hierarchy that the clergy's doing what God wants, but everyone else is just kind of tolerating it till they die. So I want you to be capitalistic because I want you to be a reformed Protestant. I want you to know that your work matters. Your job is just to glorify God in your work and it just so happens that when you work hard, God seems to bless stuff, Okay. Number five, I won't spend a lot of time in this. Jeff mentioned this in a sermon recently, but Christians may indeed go into debt. Sorry, Dave Ramsey. Number six, Dave Ramsey's not bad. I've just heard from everybody that I talk to that knows money that it's like lowest common denominator finance. It's not what any of them do who've made a bunch of money, but anyway, y'all can debate that at lunch or whatever. Number six, Christians may differ on how much they believe they should be taxed, okay? So this is an area where there needs to be Christian freedom. Some political things, there's a Christian view. You need to be pro-life, for example. And by that, we mean pro-innocent life. We're not against the death penalty or something. We're pro-legally innocent life. You need to be for traditional marriage, et cetera. Those are things the Bible mentions. Other things, there's freedom for Christians to disagree. For example, how much should we be taxed? The Bible doesn't give a percentage for the government in the New Testament with that kind of idea. You have the tithe in Old Testament Israel, but that goes to the temple. So Christians can differ on this. So this is an area where there should be Christian freedom, where you and your friends can say, I want to be taxed more for this program, or I don't want to be taxed because of this. Now, some programs are evil, so you have to keep that in mind, but this is an area of uh, Christian freedom, at least on the surface. Number seven, those who are more productive in society should be rewarded, okay? It's okay to say that though people have equal value because we're made in the image of God, that doesn't mean that some people are not more uh, valuable economically, That is the case. They should be rewarded if they work hard. If you create some great invention and it helps humanity, you should be rewarded for that. The the, the laborer deserves his wages, as the Bible would say. Number eight, there's righteous poor and unrighteous poor, just like there's righteous rich and unrighteous rich. We already talked about that. Number nine, greed is a condition of the heart. Rich people can be greedy and poor people can be greedy because they want the money that other people have. So when we think of sins that are typical to rich or poor, we think when we think of the rich as their main sin being greed, okay? The problem with that is that some of them are greedy, but some of them are not. Some of them are very faithful. A major sin of the poor that nobody talks about is greed. They want what they don't have. The difference with the rich person is they want what they've earned. Sometimes, though, on the other side, what happens are people want what they didn't earn. That's actual greed. That's actual covetousness, okay? Covetousness. I would say covet. I don't know why. Number 10, it is not inherently wrong to want to make more money. So don't feel guilty if you're just being faithful. If you're, if you're sacrificing other areas of your life, that might be an indicator that you have an idolatry of money. 
But if you're just being faithful and being successful, that's not sinful. And then lastly, let's have a quick discussion on should Christians boycott businesses? Let's talk about direct versus indirect support of sin. Here's the answer, okay? If a business makes a decision that you don't like, okay, you are always welcome to boycott them if you want to, okay? So you have the Christian freedom if a company says, we're gonna stand for this for you to say, they're not getting my money, I'm not gonna shop there, okay? So you have a right to boycott if you want to. However, what I wanna push against is this weird idea in evangelicalism that it is somehow wrong or bad or sinful to just be part of broken society, okay? If, if you are buying groceries from a grocery store and you give them some money and they use some of their money to have the grocery store and then they use some of their money to support some evil thing, you personally have not done anything wrong. How do I know? Because Jesus and Paul pay taxes. When Jesus and Paul pay taxes and the taxes go to a corrupt temple or they go to the Roman Empire, which is way worse than America, where the money's being used to fund wars that are unjust and for the gladiatorial games and for prostitution and worship of false gods, that's what the money's going to. And Paul still says, pay your taxes. You say, wait a second, some of my taxes are going for good things and some of them are going for bad. Yeah, and that's fine, you're not guilty. Let's talk about the direct versus indirect support of sin. This is why. Let's say I'm a car salesman and I sell a car to an abortion doctor. Have I sinned? What do you think? No, why not? Yeah, I I, I didn't directly support his sin. Now you can make the case, well, Zach, he's gonna hop in that car and he's gonna drive it to the abortion clinic and that car helps him kill more babies. That's so far removed though from what you're doing. You're just selling cars. I sell cars, some people use cars for sinful reasons, to kidnap people, others don't, okay? Now, would I sell an abortion doctor a scalpel? I would not, because that's too related to what he does in actually committing the sin. So what you're gonna have to do is you're gonna have to distinguish, am I directly supporting sin, or am I actually supporting something that is somewhat good or neutral, where there's good and bad mixed together, and they just might use it for sin? So if I go to Home Depot and I buy lumber, I've not done anything sinful just because Home Depot is gonna give some of that money to the LGBTQ lobby or whatever it is. If I give money directly to the LGBTQ lobby, then I have sinned, okay? So what you need to keep in mind is it is not sinful to use businesses that are doing some good and some bad when you're not directly supporting the bad. You're just supporting the business and then other people are using that for these unrighteous purposes because that's exactly what happens when you pay taxes. Some of your taxes go to paying for the military, which protects us. Some of your taxes go to Planned Parenthood. You've given money, everyone in here has given money to have babies aborted, myself included, yet none of us have sinned in that just like Paul didn't sin because what we're doing is we're supporting a good entity, the government, and they happen to be using the money for these bad purposes. So if you want to boycott something, you can, but you need to fight against this idea that it's sinful for to go to Target or all Christians should stay away from whatever the place is, okay? Now, if you're wondering, Zach, can Christians ever withhold taxes because the government is being so evil, you have to wait for Jared's lesson on that because Jared's gonna talk about revolution and resistance. So we'll talk about both active and passive ways to resist the government. Is that allowed for Christians? That's coming up. So I won't deal with whether or not taxes can be withheld here. That'll be dealt with in a later lesson. Let me pray and we'll do some Q&A. Father, we come before you through the Son and by the Spirit and confess that you're good and we're not. I pray that you would uh, be with us that you would uh, encourage us, that you would help us be wise stewards of this money. We confess that every gift we have is from you. None of it comes from our hand. Would you help us be diligent though? Would you help us use it wisely? I pray right now for people in jobs that just feel like they're swamped and they're just going to work and just the daily grind, that they would start to see that that is worship and they would find value in the most menial tasks. We love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.